Well, friends, uh, what makes a great leader? What makes a great leader? Uh, we all follow leaders in our lives, don't we? And we're all influenced by leaders and uh, are taught by leaders uh, who we look up to and uh, who have a big bearing on our lives. Uh, I wonder who that is for you. But what is it that makes a great leader? Uh, you might have heard about the best-selling book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Has anyone read that book before? Uh, it's a, it was a bestseller. Uh, Ken's read the book. Well done. Uh, it was a bestseller for, for many years. But uh, Jim Collins is an American researcher and author who conducted a five-year study on what turns good companies into great ones. Uh, he had a set of criteria for uh, how he defined the great companies. Um, and interestingly, the bar was set so high that not even um, companies that you would expect uh, would, would fall in the definition of great uh, didn't make the cut. But one interesting conclusion of the study was that the great companies were not led by the kind of leaders we would expect. Uh, you know, perhaps we would expect great companies to be led by you know, celebrity leaders with great charisma and skill, uh, people that, that have the wow factor. But that's not actually what they found. Uh, listen to what Jim Collins says in his book. He says, We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have all come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. That's interesting, isn't it? That even in the secular world, they are discovering these sorts of interesting things. But what is it that makes a great leader? Who are the people that you would like to be led by and taught by and influenced by? Well, this morning we're having a break. Um, from 1 Corinthians, which is a series that we've been looking on, uh, at for the past few weeks. And uh, we're going back to Matthew's Gospel, which uh, we've been kind of looking at piecemeal over the last few years. Uh, if you remember, Matthew's Gospel is really structured around five sermons of Jesus. Um, and so, for example, you have um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is very well known in, in chapters 5 to 7. That's the first one. Uh, you have his sermon on mission in chapter 10. You have his sermon on the parables in chapter 13. You have his te teaching or sermon about the church in chapter 18. And today we're going to be looking at his final sermon, which goes from chapters 23 to 25, which is really all about the end times uh, and Jesus as the end time judge Why five sermons uh, from Jesus in Matthew's Gospel? Well, uh, I think it's because Matthew here is consciously trying to portray Jesus as the great leader of God's people. Uh, you might know that in the Old Testament, 
Moses was the leader of God's people, and uh, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, which is often called the Pentateuch. Uh, here, Jesus is presented as the new Moses, the prophet like Moses, the new and final and greatest leader of God's people. However, you might also remember that in the chapters leading up to this final block of teaching material, uh, Jesus has been uh, at odds with uh, these leaders of Israel. Um, they do not recognize Jesus as God's uh, ultimate leader and Messiah. And so in chapter 23, um, things have come to a head. Uh, and Jesus begins with a great warning against following these religious leaders in Israel. Uh, now, if you have a look at chapter 23, have, have a look at chapter 23 in your Bibles there, uh, you'll see there in verse 1 that Jesus' warning is directed uh, to the crowds and to his own disciples. Uh, you see that in verse 1? Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples these things. Uh, in next week's passage, we'll see that Jesus uh, starts to address the religious leaders directly. But uh, here, what he's doing is he's warning the crowds and he's warning the, his own disciples, people like us, against the religious leaders of his day. Um, what is the warning then uh, that we see in this passage? Well, you can see the warning there in verse 2, can't you? In verse 2, Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. The scribes, if you remember, were the teachers of God's law. Uh, they were the ones who interpreted the law of God, and uh, were invested with teaching the people of Israel uh, the things of God. Uh, the Pharisees were not so much uh, teachers, but they were uh, the, the leaders among the people of Israel who advocated for a strict devotion to the Jewish laws, including the food laws and things like hand washing and tithing and so forth. Now, uh, friends, you might find it surprising that Jesus says to the crowds and disciples here that they should do and observe the things that the scribe and Pharisees tell them. It almost sounds as though Jesus is endorsing the teaching of uh, the scribes and Pharisees here. Isn't it? Now, I don't think that's what's going on. If you remember in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has already spoken against the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Can anyone uh, remember uh, where that happens in Matthew's Gospel? Uh, perhaps uh, just turn to the people sitting next to you. Um, I know it's hard to listen with masks on and things like that, but just turn to the people sitting next to you. Where in Matthew's Gospel has Jesus spoken against the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees? I'll give you one minute to think about it. Where does that happen?
going to be the first volunteer to tell us uh, where does Jesus speak against the teaching of the, the, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel? Anyone want to? Oh, Martin, yes. 16? What, what happens in chapter 16? Chapter 16, Jesus warns the people against the, the leaven uh, of the, the, the Pharisees in particular. Um, leaven is just like yeast, so it's warning that their teaching can kind of take hold and spread uh, smoothly like yeast. Um, so that's a very clear example. Anywhere else? So, uh, uh, in the same chapter, you're saying um, uh, Jesus sort of pronounces woes uh, against uh, the religious leaders. Yeah. So, it happens there. Anywhere else? I think in chapter 15 as well, it happens um, where um, Jesus attacks sort of the traditions and the man made rules and regulations of. The scribes and Pharisees there. And so, if we come back to uh, Matthew chapter 23, uh, I don't think Jesus is necessarily endorsing their teaching there. Um, but then, what is he talking about here? Uh, well, I think uh, the key comes in uh, verse 2, where Jesus um, says that these scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Uh, do you see that there? Um, they sit on Moses' seat. Uh, what is it to, to sit on Moses' seat? Uh, well, um, here Matthew is using that as a, as a bit of a metaphor for uh, the teaching function. It's a bit like when we speak about the chair of economics at the University of Sydney or the chair of philosophy. Uh, what we're talking about is, is a professor of, of economics or philosophy who teaches that particular subject. So what Jesus is saying here is not necessarily to embrace the whole teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, but to the extent that they sit on Moses' seat, to the extent that they are teaching the things that Moses taught in the law of God, then uh, you do and you observe what they say. Notice, friends, that the emphasis on this passage is not necessarily on the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, but the emphasis actually falls on their works. Uh, you are not to do the works that they do, notice Jesus says. You are not to practice the things that they practice, says Jesus. But what was so wrong with their practices or their works? Well, firstly, uh, notice that Jesus says that uh, these scribes and Pharisees lay heavy burdens on people. They lay heavy burdens on people. You can see there in verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Uh, some years ago, uh, I called a removalist to help my family move 
houses from Peking to, to Strathfield. Uh, it was a Korean removalist company, and uh, on the day, um, I noticed that they sent two people out to help us. One was a, a fairly big guy, and the other guy was a, a scrawny overseas student um, who looked like he hadn't eaten for days. Uh, and I still remember him trying to move our piano. <laughs> um, the big guy was okay, but uh, this guy sort of had our piano on his back, and uh, literally uh, he buckled under the, the weight of it. And uh, we sort of put our piano down on the landing and said, I can't do this anymore. See, that's the sort of picture we get here, isn't it? But it's not a physical burden that Jesus is speaking about. Rather, he's speaking about a religious burden here. Well, you see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who added hundreds and hundreds of man-made religious rules and regulations to the law of Moses and laid these rules and regulations on people such that the, the common person just buckled under the pressure. They simply could not do these things that were being asked of them. But that's the nature of man-made religion. That's the nature of man-made religious rules and regulations. It, it burdens people. It, it robs people of joy. Many people simply buckle under the pressure and give up. I once had a friend who became a Jehovah's Witness, and I immediately noticed how burdened and joyless he looked after he converted. Now, he, he had to go to Bible study three times a week. He had to go door knocking on weekends. He wasn't allowed to enjoy time with his friends. But each week he felt he had to do all these religious rules and regulations in order to feel like he was in the right with God. And over time, it became a greater and greater burden for him. But friends, this is also a danger for us. It's often true that Christians can think about their faith, not in terms of a relationship with Jesus, but in terms of rules and regulations that we must keep in order to be right with God. Have you ever felt burdened in this way in your Christian life? If you have, then remember that knowing Jesus is meant to be different. Do you remember what Jesus says in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel? He says these wonderful words. He says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What wonderful words. See, knowing Jesus is about rest for your soul. About having your burdens lifted by Jesus rather than put onto you. It's not that knowing Jesus doesn't have any obligations. Far from it. And knowing Jesus comes with the most serious of obligations, which is 
taking your very own cross and giving up your life and following him. But knowing Jesus is not essentially about what you and I do, but it is essentially about what Jesus has done already to lift the burden of sin from us. It's about discovering just how wonderful it is to, to live his way. Living life the way Jesus teaches us is far from being a burden, but it is actually the best way to live. Do you believe that? Have you experienced that? It's a joy, it's a delight, it's the most full thing. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees who did not serve the people by simply burdened them even more. What Jesus says, when he comes, as he says, I want to take that burden from you. No one of glory is to come. However, the second thing uh, that is wrong about the works of the scribes and Pharisees is that their works are all about outward appearances. Their works are all about outward appearances. And you can see it there in verse 5. Right? In verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Uh, phylacteries, uh, if you don't know what they are, were these small leather boxes that uh, the Jews used to have. They used to put uh, small bits of scripture in them um, and, and tie these boxes to their arms or to their foreheads, um, similar to uh, what is instructed in Deuteronomy 6, which uh, we read this morning, um, in order to remind them uh, about uh, obeying God's law. Um, similarly, the fringes here uh, are speaking about uh, little tassels that were instructed of the Jews. Uh, to attach to the fringes of their clothing in order to remind them uh, of the Word of God. Uh, now, I don't think Jesus here is, is speaking about, um, speaking against the practice of having phylacteries or, or tassels here. And uh, in fact, uh, as I mentioned, if you look up some uh, Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 6 or Exodus 13, uh, it, Moses actually speaks about uh, these sorts of things. Here was that the scribes and Pharisees sort of supersized their phylacteries and their tassels because their concern was not necessarily to obey God's law, but their major concern was uh, to show other people just how pious they were so that they could be seen as great in the eyes of others. The same thing happened when they came to public places where there were lots of eyes watching. We're told there that the scribes and Pharisees love to sit in the most honored seats, perhaps at the head of the table, so that they would be recognized by others. They love to be greeted in a showy way so that everyone else could see just how important they were. They love to be called by revered titles like uh, rabbi, so that other people would think of them as important and great and pious. Now again, uh, I think that the problem here is necessarily with the outward action. 
But it wasn't wrong to have phylacteries uh, and fringes. It wasn't wrong to sit in good seats from time to time. It wasn't wrong to have titles, but it was really about what they loved. You notice the word love there that is used of, uh, of them? Uh, they loved to be noticed. They loved putting on an external show of their piety so that others would think well of them. They loved to be seen by others so that others would think how great they were. Now, in the end, rather than loving God and neighbor, which was what the law was all about, they simply loved themselves. That's the problem here. Now, you see, friends, our outward actions are morally ambiguous. Outward actions are morally ambiguous. I mean, think, for example, of you know, that classic scene um, on some movies where uh, you have an attractive, a very attractive Whether you are simply doing it uh, to show off, 
sister and I serve one another. Not simply when there are watching eyes on us, but in secret as well, so that we will be exalted by our greatest leader and teacher, the Lord God. Our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to lift our burdens from us and to give us the rest of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that knowing him and following him is not a burden, but a great glory and delight. And we thank you that he is the greatest of them all, because he left heaven itself to come into this world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us that we might enter the rest of heaven. I thank you for helping us to know him, and we pray that more and more we would see what a delight it is to follow his leading, his teaching, and to live in a way that pleases him. And Father, we pray that you would help us as your people to more and more grasp the upside-down nature his rule and his kingdom, but see his greatness in terms that not of, not of um, self-promotion, but rather of service. Uh, forgive us for the times when we have sought to be great in the eyes of the world, and help us and humble us to be servants of our Lord Jesus Christ and our brothers and sisters who belong to him. And help us to sit humbly at the feet of our Lord Jesus so that we might learn from him and that we might do the works that he would have us to do. Please change us, not simply externally, but on the inside by the power of your spirit so that we might do these works uh, not in eye-pleasing ways, but out of a genuine love.